Starting now. <laughs> and that explains the reason why we're supposed to do mitzvahs. <laughs> okay, no, in all seriousness. Um, but actually, no, I'm serious. The class is about why we do mitzvahs. Cool. In the light of chassidus. That, that is what we're going to talk about today. Now, there are many areas of Jewish thought, many subjects that Jewish thought covers. One of the central ones is known in Hebrew as taimei ha-mitzvahs, or the reason for the mitzvahs. And like everything, Chassidus has a unique take on it. Um, so I think I'll just, you know, like give you the bombshell at the beginning of class, and then like work backwards. That sound good? Yeah. Oof. Okay. I'm ready. So according to Chassidus, what is the reason for doing mitzvahs? To connect to Hashem. There is no reason for doing mitzvahs. Nice. That's There's what Chassidus says. Yes. There's no reason for doing mitzvahs. <laughs> <laughs> Right? There we go. Okay. Now, let's work backwards. If someone were to say, what is the reason for having a friend? There is no reason. Now, now, now if someone is asking that question, there could be a few possibilities. Number one, they could be in some kind of philosophy, psychology, or sociology class, detached from the actual real-life experience of having friends. Another possibility is that they're very unhealthy in, in their mental state. Another possibility is that they have never actually had a friend. So they don't really know what you mean by friends. But if you have an actual person who's reasonably mentally healthy, living their actual life, who has, have, has actual friends, like, a weird question, like, what's the reason for having friends? It's not the kind of thing, like, there's a reason for going to the bank. You know, there's a reason for scrubbing your toilet. Um, there's even a reason for, I don't know. Brushing your teeth. Yeah, brushing your teeth. There's a reason for that, too. But friendship is not like the kind of thing that people living lives where they're reasonably healthy, having actual friendships. Like, you know, this friendship thing, it, it needs a reason. Like, I need something to justify the friendship. It doesn't need a reason, but there is a reason. Mm. So, this is what we have to talk about reasons first. Okay? Now, every age has its idols. And by an idol, I mean something you can point to, either figuratively or metaphorically, and say, this is the end-all and be-all, and therefore, you have to like stick it in everywhere. Okay, that's an idol. Okay. Is God an idol? Like, for example, what? First, let's test if God is an idol. I gave a definition for an idol. Let's see if God is an idol. Yeah. <laughs> Why? The end all be all is in everything. Well, I think it's very important to remember exactly what the teacher said. Can you say it again? You cannot point to something that you can point to, okay. fig- literally or figuratively. Oh, figuratively. No, you can't. Well, even figuratively. Oh, well. You just did a lot of pointing. <laughs> because the same way that Hashem does not have a physical body, physical parameters, um, to paraphrase, to, to quote the Zohar, which means no thought can conceive of him, which means if you're thinking about God, it's not God you're thinking about. Wait, 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 wait. That makes sense. No thought can conceive of him. Which means, if you are, you are thinking about God, 
It is not God. You are thinking about God is not the kind of thing you can point to either by saying God is here physically or saying this is the idea of God or that is the idea of God or God is like this or God is like that. Just like God is not six feet tall or four feet tall or have blue eyes or green eyes, God does not also fit into any of our other parameters, whether they be emotional or intellectual or otherwise. And therefore, there is no being able to point to God saying, this thing over here, this whatever that is, is so important it shows up everywhere. It is true, just one second. It is true that God fits the second definition of an idol, of something that is so important that you have to put it everywhere and involved in everything. It's the first thing, that God is not the kind of thing you can point to in any real sense. Um, yes? Oh, yeah. So you're saying that you can't, like, if you're thinking about God, you're not. it's not God who you're thinking about. It doesn't make sense, though. How is that? Because when you're thinking about God, you could be thinking about how, you know, Hashem came to Moses. It's not like you're thinking about a physical object, you know. That's true. You're but, thinking about an idea. You know, but do you, do you realize you just threw in a bunch of things? You're thinking about how there was something, which you don't know what it was, mm-hmm. came to Moshe, which you don't know what it means he came to Moshe. You just know the result of that was like Moshe came out and said, you know, all you men need fringes on the corners of your garments. In other words, mm-hmm. you're not thinking of God. There's this empty space in your thought where God plays a role in something else that happens. Like there was, Moshe had a prophecy. Moshe comes down and says that this is what we're supposed to do, and we attribute that to this unknown okay. God. But if you try and just think directly about God and strip like the Moshe away and strip like the world away and just think directly about God, you know what you're left with? A big blank. Yes. Yes. That is basically the premise. Although Kabbalah adds a nice twist to this that says the problem is not that we're not smart enough, it's that God is not the kind of thing that can be pointed to in that kind of sense, which means God can't even point to himself. Said that in the Zohar. It's not like you can't think of God, God can't really think of God. It's like going back to the physical thing. Um, does God know what size shoe he wears? <laughs> right. So it's not like ignorance they doesn't know because they're just. So the thing is, like, it's not that we don't know about God because we're not smart enough and wise enough. It's just that there's God doesn't fit in. Just like God isn't physical, God isn't knowable, God isn't colorable, God isn't. He's just God. And so, as King David says, "Dumya sihila," silence is his praise. If you want to speak about God interacting with things, the interactions we can talk about. So. What makes an idol an idol is that you can, there's something that you can concretely relate to, whether physically or otherwise, and then say this is so such primary importance that it needs to show up everywhere and in everything. Um, sometimes we make a big deal about it, and sometimes it's just implicit. We're not even realizing that we're doing it. Yeah. So when we're thinking about God, we're thinking of God within, like, attributes. So I understand, like. Yes, although that's a whole other topic of like what do you now do with that problem of not being able to directly think about God. But is that the topic of today's class? No, I just brought that up to straight why God does not fit into the definition of the Bible that I offer. Yeah? I realize this isn't entirely to do with what you're talking about. Does this link at all to the ontological argument? Or does that have more to do with the question of religion? So, as a general principle in, Jew- in, in Jewish thought, um, Hasidus takes an a priori assumption that we do not engage in theology. In other words, that God is not a, um, a idea to be debated or discussed. Um, God is not a conclusion, but a fundamental 
lived premise. Um, and so that all, all theological arguments are kind of like off the table when it comes to Chassidus. So in as much as the Chassidus class is like irrelevant. Now, if you were to ask from like other perspectives of Jewish thought, there's definitely some interesting interplay between the ontological argument and the notion that God is not conceivable. But since it's officially labeled the Chassidus class, um, yeah. Okay, yes. That's good. Usually mm-hmm. people disagree with me. Okay. <laughs> now I feel good about myself. Mm-hmm. But that's something that I like felt also, but um, I th- always thought that was going against like the traditional Jewish uh, way of thinking just because in a lot of books like, they refer to God in very interesting yes. terms. So is wise what's the comment? I will give you the answer in less than three sentences, provided you don't ask any follow-up questions until after class, in which case I'm open to answer follow-up questions. Your soul is not physical, but your soul can interact with the world by being embodied in the physical body. God is not knowable, but can interact with a knowable reality by being clothed in some kind of knowable form, and that knowable form is what is known as the spheres or the supernal other which is the subject of Kabbalah, and that's how that is addressed. Beyond that, I don't want to say anymore. But okay. it's not a physical being. I realize that, and it's beyond okay. that, I don't want to say anymore. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that was like all of Kabbalah into like three long sentences. Okay, fine. So, one of the idols of the modern age, there are many, but one of the idols of the modern is reason. Uh, reason meaning that things require external explanation. Something needs to be explained by something else. Um, now, I want to be very clear. One of the problems in teaching a class in English is that all the original texts are in Hebrew, Aramaic, Yiddish, and the smattering of Arabic, which I don't speak by the way. Um, and every language has its own nuances. One of the meanings of reason, um, which is as a translation for the Hebrew word siba, is something that is outside the thing that helps explain the thing. So I'll give you two examples. Okay? Um, what is the reason that you're going to the store? And the answer is to get the milk. Right? So the act of going to the store in and of itself is not sufficiently understood, but when you add the fact that you have an intent to own some milk, um, and the fact that there's milk in the store for sale, then you're going to the store all of a sudden it makes more sense. Right? So the act of going to the store is not sufficiently understood. You add other information, and that now provides a reason for that. Okay, um, That's one kind of reason. Um, you, know, uh, the, you could say um, the reason why the window broke was because someone threw a baseball at it. It's a different kind of reason. There's a broken window, and that's not a sufficiently understood reality. So we adding something else external to that, meaning something broke. Baseball at the window now explains the fact that the window is broken. So by reason, and that's what I mean in this reason, and in fact, when we speak about time and mitzvahs, reasons for mitzvahs, it's understood in this way, is that it's what is the underlying cause or justification or motivation for doing this thing called the mitzvah. And that always requires me to look at things beyond the mitzvah. Okay? So I'm going to give you like some simple classic examples of time and mitzvahs that are brought outside of chassidus. Reasons for mitzvahs. Causes, in other words, for doing mitzvahs. Okay. 
One mitzvah is thou shalt not murder. You familiar with that mitzvah? By the way, there is no mitzvah thou shalt not kill. There's no such mitzvah. There are actually more mitzvahs to kill than the mitzvahs not to kill. You should count the 600 and go, how many of them actually require us to kill in some context? There's more of those than the ones that require us not to kill. But there is one mitzvah thou shalt not murder. Um, okay, what's the reason for not murdering? So the simple answer is, what happens if you have a society where people are allowed to murder? By the way, everyone knows the definition of murder? It's not killing, right? What makes killing murder? So like when the state executes somebody, that's called murder? No. I mean, you might if you're like anti-death penalty thing, but, but, but I'm saying the Hebrew word ritzicha does not, is actually something the state can't actually do. It can only be done by a private individual. What? Not necessarily. In fact, it could become compassionately according to Judaism. So assisted suicide is understood as murder in Judaism. Can we assisted suicide? What? Murder is not justified. Murder is, murder is killing which is unjustified or more, more accurately is um, extrajudicial. It takes place outside the sanction of the law. So there are many kinds of killing which would not be classified as murder. Killing during war, killing by the state, killing in certain cases of self-defense or in defense of others. I'm not getting all the details. Those aren't classified as murder because the law says that all of those are either A, or okay, or B, even required. But if killing somebody where the law doesn't sanction it, regardless of um, whether you think it's justified or compassionate or otherwise, is what mean by, was what the Hebrew word murder. Okay, so what's bad about a society that ha- allows murder? Like, why, why should murder be outlawed? Because everyone would die. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, everyone would die, but it would bring a lot of chaos, right? Right? Yeah. So, right? Um, now, what's interesting here is then you can make a follow-up argument. Okay, but you could think of certain murders, which, like, if they were okay, that wouldn't, like, totally undermine society. And so you need to explain why all murder is not allowed. Um, and so one of the classic arguments is that, well, you know, it's basically a slippery slope argument. If you allow some murders, you can't really regulate a society allowing some murders, not other murders, right? Um, think of societies where, where, where dueling and um, honor killings are, 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 they're not officially sanctioned by the law, but the law took it away and see how those kind of spiral out of control and um, you, get, you get blood feuds going on, right? So it's kind of just hard to like say, well, some small certain murders are okay, but other murders are like it's very hard to regulate society. And so a lot of just things say, well, that's fairly obvious. You can't have a society where murders okay. All killing has to be explicitly sanctioned by the law, or otherwise it's off limits. Okay, fine. Okay, um, you can make a kind of similar argument for stealing to kind of destroy society. You can get a bunch of mitzvahs this way, right? Okay. Um, if you want to work this train of thought, how do you explain a mitzvah like taking the rule of an estro for species on Sukkot? That one's a little trickier, right? What's the reason for doing that? The mitzvah of the four species, the rule of an estro on Sukkot, you're supposed to take um, a palm branch and a citron and some willows and some myrtles and blah, blah, blah. <coughs> it's all very exciting, but why? It's actually very weird if you think about it. Why? So now you've got to get a little more creative, right? Um, and so, in general, the classic view is basically to say, well, there are three reasons for doing mitzvahs. Reason number one is it 
it enables society to function better. So that gives you your things like murder, gives you your things like um, theft, gives you requirements for tzedakah, um, which is usually mistranslated as charity, um, but we can have that discussion another time. It also gives you, an, um, if your understanding of society is that society is supposed to be oriented towards God, it'll also explain why you need to outlaw idolatry and you know, maybe um, you know, do stuff like that. But then you've got other mitzvahs, and you're going to have to explain those mitzvahs differently. So you make a whole group of mitzvahs which are basically symbolic in nature. The mitzvah serves a social purpose in getting people to identify and recall certain values. Such for, so, for instance, do you want to hear the reason, the classic reason why we shake a little Esther on Sukkot? Yeah. It's to remind us that we're so happy that God has been good to us. Because apparently when you're happy, you take plants and you wave them around. <laughs> Apparently, that was an ancient Middle Eastern custom. But that's like the simple reason. What does it um, say that? The Medrash. That's the explanation for yes. 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 Kind of like Lord, your enthusiasm. <laughs> okay. Um, and then some of them, the symbolism is a little more direct. Like, like we eat matzah because like, we fled Egypt very quickly and the dough didn't have time to rise. Or maybe it did, maybe it didn't. It's a little complicated. The story says we eat matzah before they left and after they left. But there's something about leaving Egypt and eating matzah that go together. Um, we keep Shabbos. God created the world in six days. Rest on the seventh. We rest every seventh day. right? So you get this idea of symbolism. And that gets you a whole other group of mitzvahs. You kind of look for what's the symbolic thing that this is inculcating either in the life of the individual or more generally in the life of the community um, and why that value is important. You need to create symbols and rituals and God told us what to do in order to achieve that. And then you get a third category of mitzvahs, and those are mitzvahs like not eating milk and meat, or not wearing wool and linen, um, or immersing in the mikvah after being ritually, um, that's the right word, impurified. Yeah, uh, no, there's no good word for, for tumah. Yeah. Okay, we'll go with impure. Um, and what's the reason for those things? No, no, no. There's no reason. The reason I got God surely has a good reason. God He's very wise, and we don't know. So some mitzvahs, you're like, you think about society, you think about this, you're like, yeah, I can see if you took out this mitzvah, society wouldn't work too well. And certain mitzvahs, you think, okay, if you want a society that celebrates certain values and principles, you're going to need to have these, some rituals and stuff that help inculcate that. So you have some mitzvahs for that. And then some of them, we just like trust God that he's very wise and ultimately knows some good reason. You know, it's like when you go to the doctor um, and you don't know anything about medicine, or even more importantly, you read something on WebMD, you really should you know, make sure that you trust the doctor, because you know, maybe two doctors or three doctors, because they're fallible, right? But uh, they, they did go to school for many, many years. And, uh, you were just up at 3 o'clock in the morning reading WebMD, so you might not know exactly. <laughs> um, so that's, that's basically it. Um, now, then you can get like deeper and more profound. Um, because they will actually, the mitzvahs are not actually, the mitzvahs actually have an effect on the people doing the mitzvahs. Um, so there's a concept in Judaism that, you know, we are embodied, so as we act and live in certain ways, actually it changes us. So my favorite example of this is the mitzvah of the Korban Pesach, the Paschal offering, which has to be eaten roasted over a fire. It cannot be cooked in any liquid or sauce. Now why is that? So if you look in the classical explanation for this, there's a, by the way, an amazing book called the Sefer HaChinuch, the Book of Education, it's translated in English and goes to all 613 mitzvahs. 
and offer some pretty basic reasoning for each one. So, what's the reason why the classical offering has to be eaten roasted over an open fire? Book of Education. So, do you know why we have chicken soup on Shabbos? No, because we're poor. Oh, and they had to stretch the leg. And you have to stretch the chicken. Yeah, kind of takes the romanticism out of it, but that's the reason. It's still good. It is still good. Um, Have you ever noticed that when there's a barbecue, you go through a lot more meat? Much faster than if you know you make a stew or a soup, okay. and so in the ancient world, only really rich people who are basically nobility um, ever had the opportunity to really eat roasted meat. If you got some meat, you were going to eat some meat. You are not going to waste it like roasting it. That same piece of meat can feed your whole family if you like throw it in a pot with some vegetables and some soap, you know, water and stuff. So, but because on Pesach we're all supposed to feel like we're nobility, the Torah commands us to eat the meat like we're nobility. And by the way, that also explains why you're supposed to eat it once you're satiated. Poor people, once they're satiated, they don't keep eating. Why not? They don't have anything to eat. They either have anything to eat, and if they do, they're going to save it for later, right? But rich people are not going to have that extra hamburger just because it tastes good, are they? I mean, sorry, poor people don't have the extra hamburger because it tastes good. But the Paschal offering was like that extra little morsel of meat. You're full, you're done. But, you know, you're going to eat the roasted meat just because you can. And that makes you feel like you're a noble, rich, independent person. That will change your mindset, at least for the night. And then you go through all the different mitzvahs and explain why they're this way, why they're that way. Then you can go one step further and say, actually, every mitzvah you do achieves this thing in the spiritual world. I've never been to the spiritual world, but that's what they say in the books. so, for instance, um, why do we make kiddush over a cup of wine? So, well, for many different reasons, right? Like, well, the first thing is, like, if you want to instantiate a value in society, making people sit, making people um, make a declaration over a cup of wine before they have their weekly family meal, is a good way of like instilling that value. One of the downsides about the fact that we don't speak Hebrew is that most people, when they hear Kiddush, it just sounds like gobbledygook to them. But if you actually understood what... Because I don't know what to actually say in Kiddush. Look it in the sitter next time you hear Kiddush. Find in English. Find an Hebrew pair. And read through what it says. It's like some heavy theology right there. <laughs> stuff like, we're the chosen people and all sorts of good stuff like that. And you got to like, everyone in the quiet, we make the formal declaration like, you know, and they used to have in school the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> That kind of thing. Um, and then you can go, you know, you can you can say like wine, it's like, you know, <laughs> rejoicing and alcoholic and stuff like that. But the Kabbalistic reason um, is that wine um, represents the Kabbalistic notion of God coming into the world in a way that can be understood and made sense of. You think why does wine represent that? You feel a little... <laughs> no, no, it's because you know, like when you have stuff you don't really want to tell people, but you had too much to drink and then you end up telling them. Wine goes in, secrets come out. That's right. Yeah. So all this, so, so right. It's not about the feeling. It's, no, no, it's yeah. okay. yeah. That's right. That's the basic idea. So the idea is, if God is going to be understandable, something has to reveal that, and that's the idea of wine. The problem is, you ever noticed that sometimes when people are a little too much to drink and they share their inner thoughts. 
It doesn't always have the best effect. <laughs> Sometimes it would have been better if those thoughts had been kept private. It can kind of strain relationships. Um, there's certain things that, like, little children are always drunk, but they're yeah. cute. So, so my four-year-old and my six-year-old were just, they were debating a few days ago. They actually debate this frequently, I've noticed, whether I'm a fatso or not. <laughs> Which is funny, because they're my four-year-old and my six-year-old, right? But if I'm, like, sitting with some friends and he's had too much to drink, it's like, yo, you're really fat. I don't know how to take that. Like, I'm not, you know, maybe thinks that, but, like, there's plausible viability. So sometimes when things come out, it doesn't go, it doesn't make the relationship better. It kind of strains it. And so we all think, oh, God would be so much understandable and so much, make so much more sense. It would just like make everything so much smoother. But that's not true. Because there's a few facts about God, which are nice for classroom, but very difficult to handle in real life. Number one, God is eternal and you are not. Now, how long is eternity? Forever. Okay. So that means that there's an infinite, um, we'll, we'll put it in terms of time, though it's really beyond that, but we'll just, for, for illustration purposes, there's an infinite amount of time where God was able to make do without you. And God forbid after you die, there's an infinite amount of time where God was able to make do without you. And so what does that do to your relative significance to God if you take that? Yeah. And there's all these little things like that that, you know, as a matter of, you know, just in the abstract, it's one thing. But actually facing that in real life is very harsh. Yeah. Isn't the idea that we all have a piece of God inside of us, so in that sense, like, we are part of God, so therefore we are valuable? And so, in keeping in line with the point that I'm making, what that would therefore mean is the part of you that is the piece of God is not the temporal part of you. And the part of you that you're familiar with is the temporal part of you. So now the conclusion is not only are you not important to God, you're in complete delusion about who you are, who you are also. <laughs> so now we just made a bad situation worse. Thank you, Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Anyone else? <laughs> yeah. So this can be kind of heavy if just God just like lets it all out. So the wine needs to. Now, the idea of kiddish um, is that. Sometimes information, right? Why, why is it when my kids are debating whether I'm a fat or not? I don't get offended. Because they're kids. They don't mean Explain. It. Like they, they're just saying it, but they don't understand the rep, like what it exactly can come out to be or what it means. In or maybe the reverse. Maybe they only mean exactly that. Mm -hmm. Like they are, they, they are debating like how large is my stomach, yeah, and that's it. Like with no, nothing beyond that fact. They're not caught up in all the social and emotional ramifications thereof. Right. You see, it's actually the reverse. Like they're just—it's it's just like, you know, there's people who look like this, there's people who look like that, and which one is our father? And it's kind of funny to like talk about that. I'm like that's it. There's nothing. There's no other baggage around it. Now, the idea um, of of kiddish is that there's a perspective of, of the truth being able to take things just for what they are. There's like an an ultimate. It's like a in a similar sense, like people say something like children are wise, wisdom is being able to take things for what they are without blowing them out of proportion and adding all this extra baggage. Just, it is what it is. And like, you know, it's kind of cute, it's kind of silly, but it just is what it is. And that, and so the idea is, when you make kiddish, is that if we're going to have this day where we're just going to be with God, on the one hand we want God to like, you know, be open with us, there's the wine. 
But on the other hand, we want it to have this perspective. It just it is what it is. There's not any judgment. And the idea of making kiddish over the wine is that it should be more like the kids playfully discussing whether their father is fat, so rather than your friend who gets drunk and then says, you know, you're really fat, <laughs> and then you just get offended. It's, an, it's There's a different mindset of just taking things for what they are and nothing more than that. And that is Kabbalistically what we're trying to achieve by making the declaration of Kiddush over the wine, of bringing that perspective to this open revelation. And because we somehow have all the leverage to the spiritual worlds, when we say words over wine, somehow that happens. That's just an example of a Kabbalistic reason for doing a mitzvah. Okay. But today's class is about what? Mitzvah. And? No. Why there's no reason for doing mitzvahs. <laughs> Those are all reasons for doing mitzvahs. Yes? So people before, before Kabbal- like Kabbalists were about, did people just do the mitzvahs like stand because? <coughs> like, they didn't have these like deep reasons behind, like explanations and ideas. They just did them because they were commanded to do them? Yeah, and there's the obvious reason for doing mitzvahs, which is that God runs the world and it's not a good idea to take him off. That's a, that's a good reason. Or, or you know, if you get on God's good side, you might get a new car. Or, or at least if you die young, you'll go to heaven or something like that. I mean, there's those, those reasons too, but, you know, a lot of people do mitzvahs for those reasons. But yeah, you have a whole range of mitzvahs. You don't want to get punished. You want to get rewarded. Mitzvahs are good for society. Mitzvahs are good for your spiritual development. Mitzvahs uh, fix the upper worlds and God's relationship with them and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, those are all reasons for doing mitzvahs. What's Chassidus' view? There's no reason. There's no reason. Or to put it a little slightly differently, mitzvahs don't need a reason. That's very that's that's different. That's that's different. That's I know it's different. That's why I'm working backwards. Okay. They're both correct. They're both correct, which is not that there's no reason for doing mitzvahs. But when you start explaining the reasons for doing mitzvahs, you've actually lost some, some sense of what the mitzvah is. In other words, like this. There's the truth of the mitzvah, which has no reason. And there's superficial elements of the mitzvahs that you could provide reasons for. So if you're going around trying to provide reasons for the mitzvahs, then what part of the mitzvah are you relating to? The superficial part of the mitzvah. And if you're in touch with what the mitzvah really is, then you would say, there is no reason for the mitzvah. Now what if you're in touch with both the deep (laughs) truth of what a mitzvah actually is and the superficial part as one whole? then you would kind of say that mitzvahs don't actually need reasons, but there are elements of mitzvahs which support reasons if you want them. Sorry, can you expand upon the truth of the mitzvah has no reason? Um, I can, that's the main topic of the class. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so, takes the following, by the way, um, so, so, Chassidus, Chassidus is not very apologetic in the sense that a lot of books, they buy into the idol and then a lot of them they try and work with it. So I come, I have an idol, do things need a reason, right? We live in a world where things need a reason, especially in the modern age. Um, and what that means is that I look at this action, I take the lulav, I'm shaking the lulav, and I stop saying, you know what, why am I doing this? What's the point? And it's at, it's at that instance that I need a reason. Yeah, or I'm wrapping tefillin, and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, why? Like somehow the act of putting on the tefillin is not like sufficient in and of itself. I need something beyond what I'm actually doing to make sense of it. 
Now that's an experience everyone has. Experiences are just that, they're experiences. But then there's also ideology. And we live in a world where if you can't provide some sort of larger reason for a thing, then somehow that means the thing doesn't have a lot of value. And I want to show you what that goes like back with friendship. And I'll go back to mitzvahs. If you take a class in psychology, sociology, anthropology, or something like that, will why friendship exists be discussed? Possibly. 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 Reasonable. What? Now, and what would be the reasons for people having friendships? What might some of the reasons be offered? Comfort. Comfort. So friendship is a means to comfort. What else? Companionship. What? Self-expression. You have a friend, you have an opportunity to expand. What? Companionship. No. That doesn't work. Will you, explain to, will you please explain to me why that does not work? Why why a reason for friendship cannot be companionship? Because that's, that's two words that mean the same thing. The reason for having a companion is to fill your need for friendship. It's the same thing. Right? Well, that's a good explanation. It, it's, it's actually not an explanation. It's not giving you anything other. Like, like, if you don't know that friendship is companionship, then I guess you haven't had friends. <laughs> Like, two people that don't feel any companionship with each other is not much of a friendship. Like, that is the thing. Yes? I think friendship is more It might be more than that, but it entails that. Um, it also depends what we mean by companionship. As in, like, having the relationship with another person in this world. Mental health. That's the friendship. That's what <laughs> Mental health. No, this is actually this is actually the point. In other words, when you're trying to explain what friendship needs, what you basically do is you what you need to do is you, you take you make a mental construct. You say there's the world, there's reality. Okay. Now, if you took friendship out, what other thing? Emphasis on the word other thing would go haywire. That I can say ah, friendship serves this purpose. But if the only thing that's missing when you take out friendship is friendship itself, that's not a, what. <laughs> That's not true. Because Actually, I'll explain it in a minute. Let me finish this thought. Okay. So if you take something out, it's like if you have a car and someone just like randomly pulls out a part of the car and says, what's this for? You say, well, okay, well, what wouldn't work in the car if you take this out, right? But if the only thing that would be missing if you took it out was the thing itself, then is it really for anything? No. No. Maybe. <laughs> okay. So now, the problem... Yes? I have one. How about connection? Does connection work? But isn't friendship connection? That's what it is? What about social development? Society wouldn't work without friendship. That's a word, yeah. So, there's, so you could work like this. Like, in fact, there are many ancient schools of thought which say that. But in order for amazing things to happen, you need societies. Like, you can't have roller coasters without societies. And you can't have societies without social bonds. And social bonds need to be something that you find truly compelling. So there needs to be an emotional investment in them. Ergo, friendship is necessary for the production of roller coasters and rocket ships. I mean, yes, that is true. But, like, is that... Do you feel like that's why you need friends? So that society can build skyscrapers? So this is what I want to get about the, about the happiness thing. 
if you want to really examine something, you have to examine what it actually is. Okay, so you have to actually look at the actual lived experience of having friends. And because friends is like a very vague term, I would like to... Um, two people that enjoy spending time with each other when it is convenient for today's class does not count as friendship. Okay. There's a famous story um, where someone comes to a Hasidic Rebbe and says, what's a Hasidic Rebbe? And he says, Hasidic Rebbe is a friend. Yes, well, I have lots of friends. Why don't you need a Hasidic Rebbe to be my friend? Says, well, next time it's like, you know, a dark, rainy day. You know, or, you know, actually, better yet, rainy night. Put on some dirty clothes and start knocking on all your friends' doors and tell them you just did something horrible and you need some help. And See how many friends you have. What? No, I mean, one of the things that happens um, when people go through crises, like a genuine crisis, is they turn out, they figure out, Friends so the friends are. And it turns out that some of their friends were not the people they always liked to hang out with. Mm-hmm. And some of the people they really like to hang out are not really their friends. In other words, friendship is that there is this real sense of being there for each other and helping each other and caring about each other um, that binds you. Okay. Now, enjoying spending time with each other can definitely make a friendship better. Um, so... If you look at the actual experience of friendship, when you try and work on being more of a friend for an ulterior motive, in other words, like I want to be your friend so that something else, so that like I will be happier in life, or so that um, I can feel like you know I'm not a loser, or so that um, I can teach you more information. Does that ultimately? allow the friendship to thrive and flourish, or does that hinder and limit the friendship? It limits it. It limits it. Right. So what do you see here? Is that the actual thing that is called friendship in real life, that people live, right? When they are doing this thing of trying to build these kinds of relationships for something other than the relationship, the relationship doesn't get built. Which means in the actual lives of people, what is the, what is the, what other thing is friendship for? And the answer is, if you make friendship for something else, that's a good way to limit or even destroy your friendship. So if I don't, if I'm looking at it from the outside, I'm looking. Okay, we want to build spaceships. We want to build uh, civilization. I can see, like, if we take out friendships, it won't work so well. Fine. But the actual lived experience of having friendships is something else entirely. It's that there is something that has intrinsic meaning and worth. Being somebody's friend. And that means both being there for them, that's one side of the friendship, and what's the other side of the friendship? Allowing someone else to be there for you, that's the harder side, by the way. Okay. Generally, I mean, there's always exceptions, but generally allowing other people to be there for you is the harder side of friendship. What is the purpose of that? What is the purpose of the connection that is creates, that's created in that? That that connection is itself important. And you can't approach this hedonistically. Hedonistically means I do something for the good feeling it produces afterwards. Um, so, for instance, like, um, does it feel good to publish a book? Like, you wrote a book and now you published it and your name's out there. Is that like a good feeling, at least in theory? Probably, yeah. one would imagine. I mean, probably means a bunch of other stuff also, like, you have to. But you could also say that, like, if you ask someone how they feel after publishing a book, they feel like that feeling is, like, 
you know what I'm saying? It's like one thing to publish a book, but then knowing that you've published the book or like knowing about the process of writing the book is what's much more valuable. That's what I wanted to get at. Nobody, I was, I, nobody is ever, who's ever really written a book says, you know what made it all worthwhile is the feeling at the end when feeling, ah, I published a book. Like that, no, you have to actually genuinely find something intrinsic in the process of writing the book because that's the only way you're going to write the book. And friendship is even more than that. Marriage, parenting, living, anything that is a real experience of living is like that. Living has to have intrinsic worth. Cleaning the toilet does not have to have intrinsic worth. I mean, there might be some people who clean the toilet because, like, I don't know, they just feel alive by cleaning the toilet. But most people, to my knowledge, clean the toilet because having dirty toilets is bad for all number of reasons. Okay. So, if I don't look at people's actual lives as friendships, and I'm trying to model the role of friendship in this other system, which is usually what happens in classrooms, I can say, well, what about like the functionality of a person or the development of society would be missing if friendship would be gone? And that, that, that's true. It's not false statements. I mean, that friendship does have a lot of ancillary benefits. But someone who's actually trying to build a friendship can't really get very far doing it for those things. Yeah? Um, are there different kinds of friendships? Yes. Yes. Yes, but for today's class, I'm, all the friendships I'm referring to are ones where the relationship leads and is built by being there for someone else and allowing someone else to be there for you. Within that, there's a lot of kinds, you know, ways of that. Um, but this is, by the way, not unique to friendship, using that as an example, right? Um, you know, serious projects, like, say, writing a book. Um, you know, we have, we have a term for this in English, a labor of love. Things that you have to actually see as intrinsically meaningful, not you're doing them for the larger result. Even though the larger result exists and it's beneficial and it's good, it's wonderful. But that can never provide sufficient justification to really allow you to do it or to allow you to experience what it really is. So, you know, let me give you an example. Um, is it true that a good marriage and the ideal assuming everybody is physically healthy, um, from the Torah's point of view anyway, results in children growing up in a happy family. That is the case. Does that mean that that is the purpose for getting married? Does that mean that's the purpose for getting married? Like you're getting married in order to have children? And you're staying married and having a relationship in order the children to have a happy home? Like that's not going to work very well as a marriage, right? So that is a benefit of the marriage, the marriage does produce it, but that isn't seeing it superficially. There has to be something intrinsic, something inherent in this thing that, that you find worth and value in and of itself. Yeah. About friendship, uh, just being there for someone and allowing someone to be there for you is a reason in itself, right? Like to the what? reason to have a friendship. For you're that? Saying, yeah, like you're saying not like a reason like, oh, I want something from you. But I want, or I don't know if I want, but like the reason for this friendship is I will be there for you and you will be there for me. So I would say this is where the idolatry comes in, is that we get so, we get so attached to a, an idea and a concept, we stick in where it doesn't belong. I would say that reason is the wrong word. Okay. I would say that's the substance of it. That's, the, that's, that's what it's all about. That's, in other words, it, it's, it's really playing a different role. It's saying the thing in the friendship that makes the friendship what it is, such that the friendship actually has significance, is this. Okay, that's not an external thing I'm using to explain it. That's getting in touch with something core and substantive about the thing itself. Okay. And this is why, I, 
see, all, almost all idols are, are only idols because of how we blow them out of proportion. I mean, I mean the, the stone statues the ancient people bowed down to are like idols for actual reasons. But the conceptual idols are almost all like reasonable ideas that have a place. It's that we become so attached to them. Like nothing is intrinsically meaningful. It always needs to be explained by something outside itself. And they start doing that even when you're talking about the thing itself, you end up not being able to differentiate between intrinsic meaning and the external justification of things. And this happens all the time. Like learning, like real learning. What's the reason to really learn something? To understand it. That's right. So basically the real reason to learn it is to learn it. Because learning is the process of understanding, coming to yeah. understand something. And if you're trying to learn it for some other reason, that really you don't get very far in the learning. And depending on the depth of what you're learning, that can, you know, if what you're learning is just information to regurgitate for a test, fine. If you're learning a, a new perspective on life, like you really can't do that for something else because whatever your something else is is from the old perspective. Um, you know, you know one of the reasons that really messes with children are subconsciously and their unconscious mind? One of the things that really disturbs children? Um, do parents have reasons for having relationships with their children? Yes. Yes. They're a part of them. No. <laughs> what, I, what I mean is, what I mean is like this: Do parents want something out of the relationship with the child other than just the pure relationship of the child? Yes. 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 Now, usually that's in the background. Usually it's very subtle. Um, in really unhealthy cases, it can be extreme. There's very rare people that manage to free themselves from that. And so unconsciously, the child picks up that as much as my parent ha cares about me, just in and of it, in and of that, in and of itself. There's also this other thing kind of hanging along that like, they do feel this is kind of like an investment. And like, they're hoping it pays out in the end. <laughs> I never got those vibes from my parents. What? <laughs> I never got those vibes from my parents. So well, the question, so your parents are, you know, these usually very, very, very subtle in, in healthy relationships. It generally, <laughs> it generally comes out um, when, when, I mean, if you're using if it's the investment thing, is if the they parents start to feel that the investment isn't paying out. Mm. Um, what do you mean by that? Like, like for instance, I or like, like I thought, like you know, I thought I, I thought this was my ticket to having grandchildren. I thought this was my uh. ticket to being able to brag to my neighbors that my child is a doctor. Or I thought, like, you would carry on the family business. Or like, right? And those things, like, they're there, and like. They don't necessarily create a dysfunctional thing. They're most people's lives, but they can because there's other elements. Um, it's very, very rare that somebody's relationship with their children. Look, I have a parent of six children, and I wouldn't say it's all that, but there's always that element that, like, you know, a lot of what you do is like because you hope that they turn out this way, and like you would be very disappointed if they didn't. Um, and and to the degree the child picks up on that, and the degree to which you really get into that, that can you know really mess with things. Okay. So. There's this idea of relating to something that this is this is intrinsically valuable, intrinsically meaningful, and then there are other things which are not intrinsically valuable, intrinsically meaningful. They need external justification. But even things which are intrinsic man, intrinsically meaningful may all have ancillary benefits, may have other benefits outside. And if you don't relate to the intrinsic meaning, like say an economist doesn't really care about the as, as an economist. I mean, in his own life he probably does care about his lack of friendships because he's an economist. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, if you know, as an economist who cares about like how productive you know the economy is and society is structured around to doing that, right, might not see the intrinsic value of friendship as anything important, but can still recognize its value because it plays a role in the economy. And so, the way Chassidus would say about all these other reasons for mitzvahs, like, you know, if you can't relate to a mitzvah what it really is, but you only can relate to society, it is true that mitzvahs have all these societal benefits. And it is true that mitzvahs have these Kabbalistic benefits, and they have these spiritual benefits. That's all true. But the only time that you really need those things to justify, to rationalize, to motivate you to do mitzvahs is when you don't know what mitzvahs actually are. If you knew what mitzvahs really were, then the intrinsic meaning in the mitzvah itself would mean that you don't need a reason for a mitzvah, or as the Mishnah says, schar mitzvah mitzvah, the word of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. So, if you're relating mitzvahs to friendship, right, as this, like, thing that's, like, ingrained society that really doesn't need a reason but is important, right? Mm-hmm. That's true so far? I reserve the right to back out of that if I feel need to. Okay, fine. So, <laughs> is... Is, try, is, 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 is putting a reason on doing a mitzvah, limiting the mitzvah the same way as having an ulterior motive for friendship, limiting friendship? So the answer to Chassidus is it depends. Of and I'll explain. It, it, it would be actually just like friendship, which is that if your motivation for the friendship is the ulterior reason, then it will really um, undermine and limit the friendship. As is friendship is going to be. But on the other hand, being aware of those things um, might help you fine-tune the friendship. In other words, we have to differentiate between what motivates us towards something and then how we go about doing it. So for instance, if I realize that well, one of the fun- results of friendship is that it builds cooperation, I can use that as a test to see, you know, am I, am I going about building this friendship in the right way. Is it leading to more cooperation between me and my friend or not? Do I feel like we're, each one's feeling like we're being more put upon? Okay. But that's different than using that as the motivation for it. So Chassidus would say all those other stuff that, that all those other things say about mitzvahs, they're all, they're all fine. And they help us understand why the halachas are the way they are and do the mitzvahs better. But if those will become our motivation for the mitzvah, then it does limit how we can, it does limit our, our, our connection to the mitzvah. Our connection to the mitzvah becomes contingent. And when we don't feel that that external reason is important enough to us, or we understand how it relates to this particular mitzvah, then our motivation for doing mitzvah drops down, like we shake plants to show how joyous we are. Like, I don't know if that would really motivate. It wouldn't motivate me to shake Lou and Esther. Oh, maybe you. But, 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 yes. <laughs> To what extent does our connection to the mitzvah really matter in the grand scheme of the Well, it depends what the mitzvah is now, doesn't it? We kind of avoided that. What is a mitzvah? Yeah. So I think since we have a half hour left, I should talk about what mitzvahs are instead of talking about what they're not. Okay. There is an odd expression in Chassidus, which is that the mitzvahs were packaged in physicality. The, the technical word is clothed, but I don't know. Well, we use the word clothed, but it's packaging. Now, in physicality, in physicality, what's a mitzvah? (coughs) You said the mitzvahs are clothed or packaged in physicality. Who said that? It's all over chassidus. Why? 
why does it say it? Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. Well, what's the reasoning? I well, know. I want well, <laughs> to back to the reasoning thing. No, no. There, 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 there. There's you know, there's a reason. But before we get to the reason, I just like to point out that if you're saying the mitzvah is packaged in physicality, <laughs> then that means that a mitzvah is not physical. Physical. Right? It's packaged in physicality. So what's the mitzvah without the packaging? Nothing. It's just not. Well, I don't know. I don't know it's what it is. Packaged. I just know that it's not physical. The the idea that, for instance, so let's use an example of a mitzvah. Um, lighting Shabbos candles is a mitzvah. Yeah. Okay. So there's the mitzvah, and then there's the, like the physical act of lighting Shabbos candles. And what God did is He took the mitzvah, and packaged into the physical act of lighting the Shabbos candle. Wait, but that's the same thing. No, it's not. The mitzvah is to do that. No. No. I would like to, before we go forward, I would like to say that chassidus does not look at reality the way we intuitively look at reality. And generally speaking, learning chassidus involves several stages. Stage one is that chassidus has been presented in a way that resonates and makes intuitive sense to people. The reason for doing that is to get them to like chassidus. Step two is then to be clear about what chassidus actually says. And all of a sudden, the difference between what Chassidus is saying and what makes intuitive sense becomes very clear, and then people are like, eh, I don't know how to deal with that. We're now going to go to stage two. Okay. So we think of a mitzvah as God commands you to do an action. When Chassidus says that the mitzvah is clothed in the physical thing, that means that there is the mitzvah, which is not lighting a candle, mitzvah is something else, and whatever that is, gets packaged in the physical act of you lighting a candle at a specific time, time window. Or, there's another mitzvah, and it's packaged in putting a coin in a pushka. Or there's another mitzvah, and it's packaged in the act of eating matzah at the Seder. And there's another mitzvah, and it's packaged in the tefillin that I wear, and so on and so forth. But those things are not actual mitzvahs. Those things are actions in which the mitzvah is clothed or packaged. And so the question is, well, what is the actual mitzvah? Because it's not that. If you don't have that, you don't get the mitzvah because the mitzvah comes in the package. It's like if Amazon delivers you your slippers in a package and you're waiting for someone to show up with slippers, you're going to wait a very long time because that box over there, slippers are in the box. you got to pick up the box with the slippers in it. Okay. So if you wait around for mitzvahs, you won't get any. you got to take the mitzvahs in the packaging. But you still have to ask the question, what is the mitzvah if it's not the package? Okay. You don't know? <laughs> no, I just, is it just like listening to God? No, no, it's worse than that. Wait, is it like whatever? <laughs> yeah. But we no. can't fulfill the mitzvah without the packaging. So that's a different to the story of the slippers, because you wouldn't get the slippers if it weren't for the packet of slippers. Right. So and you, you don't get the mitzvah unless you get the physical packaging. That's just the same. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so what is the mitzvah? You ready? Okay. The mitzvah is God. The mitzvah is God. No. Well, if you want to be a little more technical, it's mitzvahs how how God connects to us. So why would so you're saying mitzvahs are how God connects to us? God is how God connects to us. Well, yep. Let me explain the story because philosophy is hard and stories are cute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. God has the same approach. If you notice that the first. Um, book and a half of the Chumash and like a good number of the second of the fourth book is all stories and the rest is laws and there's like zero philosophy. It's like a little so. sandwich. Good, good marketing. Yeah. 
God, God is not with you. The whole philosophical explanation doesn't get you very far in life. Okay. So, the third Chabad rabbi, the Tzemach Tzedek, he is the one in the middle on the left, in the white. He was the grandson of the first Chabad rabbi, the Alter rabbi, who was not right above him, but above him to the right a little bit. And uh, he was an orphan. He was raised by his grandfather, the Alter rabbi. And he was sitting on the Alter rabbi's lap. And the Alter Rebbe was known to him as Zaidi. Zaidi means grandfather in Yiddish, which is reasonable because he was his grandfather. Unlike the Balshemto, Shem- <laughs> who was known to the Alter Rebbe as Zaidi, despite the fact that he was not his actual biological grandfather. So, anyway. So, the, the Alter Rebbe has the little Tzemach Tzedek. He's four, five, whatever it is. Um, probably four, makes I don't know. And he says, Well, where's Zaidi? And so he points. Like this. And you see the altar has a big beard, right? And so the altar says, well, that's Zadie's beard. Where's Zadie? And so he points to his eyebrows. The altar apparently have very bushy eyebrows. They're very pronounced. I don't know if they come out in the picture. That's the way he was describing people who knew him. Um, and he says, no, those are Zadie's eyebrows. And this repeats itself. Everything he points to, no, that's Zadie's nose, that's Zadie's tummy, that's Zadie's arm. And at a certain point, the Tzemach Sadiq's getting tired of this game. <laughs> like, what do you mean? So he just hops off and goes to the next room and waits a few minutes. And then he, like, knocks something over with a big crash. And he says, Zadie! And um, Altreba comes running. And he has this big smile on his face. He says, there's Zadie. <laughs> Which means, if I call your name and you come running, that's you. Like, you are, like, when, 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 when something matters to you and you run towards that, you connect to that, you engage, that's you. In fact, you could arguably say that it's not that the Tzemach Tzedek brought the Alter Rebbe into the room that that Tzemach Tzedek was in from the other room. Arguably, the, the Alter Rebbe wasn't even in the first room. What do I mean? When he was in the first room before the Tzemach Tzedek had made the crash, and so the Tzemach Tzedek in this room makes the crash, the Alter Rebbe was in this room. When the Tzemach Alter Rebbe was there, was he really there the way he was there when he ran into the second room? Was he present? Was he engaged? Was his whole being there? And so the issue of Chassidah says is that we think very physically. Something here is something there. Did it move? It's not the right way of thinking. What does it mean someone as opposed to something? What's the difference between the Alter Rebbe and a chair? A chair is a thing. It's this big. It's over here. It does this. It's for that and that's that. Someone, as the Rosh Hashanah said, you are what your thoughts are. You are what you care about. You are what you are invested in. And the deeper that goes, the truer that is you. So, what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is the fact that God is, God is with you. Totally, fully, and infinitely connecting to you. And that is the thing that he... I don't know, it's not even the thing. That is him being his true self. Okay? So when you do a mitzvah, Right? Um, the way the Zohar puts it is that you are um, you are you are embracing the body of the king. The way Alter puts it is you are giving God is giving you a hug and hopefully you're hugging him back. And if you ever see a little kid, father, mother comes home after a long day, and the kid is really excited to see them, and they rush over and give the child give their parent a hug. And the parent hopefully has enough mindset that being a parent is like what life is really about. 
and they really give the kid a hug back in the ideal are they doing something for like some purpose and some reason or in if you enter the mind of the child it's easier to see this if you enter the mind of the child and ho- hopefully the mind of the parent what's happening at that moment they're connecting true but they're not doing an act of connecting who they really are is coming out how important they are to each other is something that they're engaging and experiencing and, and that's the connection and that, that doesn't find out the other expression unless it gets packaged by the physical embrace in fact if you prevent them from doing that for some reason it causes pain like for instance if God forbid um, but there's a medical situation and like you can't touch that causes a lot of pain and you think well what's the problem because somehow how deeply important we are to each other only becomes fully realized um, when we embrace for example and so the idea of a mitzvah is what a mitzvah is simply the fact that you know who is God really? Do you know who God is? God is who? He is who. That's the problem. That's what Chassidus says that everybody gets wrong. The key thing of God is what. When he's already said, there's, we can't think of what God is. Who is God? What do you want? Like, <clears throat> what is this? What is this? No, that's not. So this is either a shirt. <laughs> or it's a man, or it's a rabbi. But if you want to go Rabbi Kaufman, then what is kind of offensive? <laughs> so who is God? Sorry. Everything. That's, that's a thing. thing. That's, a, that's a what? God gets very offended when people do that. It's like all the philosophers, they keep telling me, I am this and I'm not that. Like nobody bothered to ask me who I am. By the way, he did introduce himself, by the way. He's one. I'm a I'm yours. I took you out of Egypt. That's who I am. I'm yours. And whatever limitations you're in, I take you out of those. That, that's who God is. Okay, when does God get to really be himself? When does he get to really be yours and be with you and take you out of any limitations of time and space and things? When does that happen? Well, I can give you sometimes when it happens. When you light a Shabbos candle, when you put a coin in the fushka, when you say a bracha, um, when you hear kiddush, when you help the proverbial old lady cross the street, assuming that she wants to get across the street. <laughs> Don't cross the street and leave her there where the bus is going on the wrong side. That's not very nice. Yeah. When you tie, when you put on your right shoe before your left shoe. We talked about Whenever you do anything which we call a mitzvah, that's just the package. That is just the the, 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 the physical scenario in which God is able to fully be with you and be yours and embrace you. Now the problem is, we're like the person who gets the brown package from the from Amazon, and we're like, well, I don't need brown packaging. I don't need brown packaging in my life. I'm like, well, I think, well, maybe actually I do need a nightstand. So I could use it for that. Without failing to realize that those are the slippers you ordered. Okay, now obviously slippers are not that important. Um, I mean, they're important, but not that important. So, what, why do I need to light a Shabbos candle? Like, what's so important about candles? You're missing the point. That's what I'm saying. You're missing the point. It's not what's so important about Shabbos candles. It's what's so important about God. Like, and here's the thing. Like, if you don't know why God being yours is important, then apparently you just don't know what that means. So, what's the answer to who is Hashem really? Yours. He is yours. But. 
And, and, and this, is, this is a totally different way of thinking. So instead of saying, you're busy looking around for why do I need to do this action of lighting a candle or giving a coin or not doing this action so he's eating pork. And, what, and, and you're turning the whole thing into some sort of like an action you are commanded to do by an authority figure when really what's happening is that God is coming to be with you because that's who God really is. That's who, that's, who is God? God is someone who's, who's himself when he's with you. And this, these things that he told you to do are the ways in which that can actually happen. Those are the opportunities for them. So let me give you just a practical example. Let's say you want to meet up with someone that you really care about you haven't seen in a while. And you don't have a smartphone or a cell phone. For argument's sake. So you decide that you're going to meet on Tuesday at the coffee shop on the corner of 3rd and Lincoln at 3 o'clock. Is there anything significant about 3 o'clock on Tuesday? Yes. Yes. I want to think back to that. Why? <laughs> Wait, who, who, who said that? Was that yours? We were saying yeah. something about, like, if they... What are we talking Do about? Have a no, it was an older woman. Oh, if you have... <laughs> I know. <laughs> See, this is what happens. You get so much into objective mind, you can't even remember who they are. Anymore. It was like, it was like something like, oh, something you don't want to discuss. And it's like, okay, you know, discuss it at Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Yeah. Like, it's just okay, so fine. Wednesday at 2. No, Tuesday at 3 is fine. Bob Dylan. Is there anything... Miriam Thank you. Is there anything significant about... That particular coffee shop on that particular corner and that particular day. No, those are not like inherently significant things. That, in fact, if for some strange reason, like that wasn't the time and place you agreed to meet, and you agreed time some other time and place, that was just as good. The question is whether you actually meet up. Yes. It seems that there would be. Like, why do we have so many different mitzvot? Oh, I will tell you, because God doesn't want to be the kind of thing that you only have like once a year. He wants it to be, as the Mishnah says, that God wanted to give the Jewish people a lot of merit, a lot of, uh, there's different ways of translating what that means, merit. In this context, it means a lot of opportunity to connect to him. He gave him a lot of Torah mitzvahs. So basically, you can't get by five minutes without having some mitzvah that you could be doing. And I, I don't mean that as an exaggeration. So you can be with God when you're getting dressed. You can be with God when you're going to the bathroom. You can be with God when you're you know, grocery shopping, and you can be with God on your way to work, and you can, like, like all the time. Um, and the, 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 the problem is, when we think of the mitzvah, we th- it's like thinking of, going back to the example, of well, what's so important about the corner of 3rd and Lincoln, but it's not about the corner of 3rd and Lincoln, it just happens to be that's where you agreed to meet up. It's who you're meeting, not where you're meeting them. And that's why the Alkabur famously said, if God would have given us a mitzvah to chop wood, we would go do that. Like, it doesn't matter. What matters is that, that when, when I'm doing a mitzvah, God is embracing me. Now, if God is embracing me and I'm kind of indifferent to it, how much of a hug? Have you ever, like, given a hug to someone and you like, get a cold response? How's that feel? Nothing. How do you think it feels to God when, like, you do a mitzvah absentmindedly or not thinking about him or thinking about some ulterior motivation for why you're doing the mitzvah, but you don't see the mitzvah as intrinsically valuable because the mitzvah is actually God being present in your life, how do you think that feels to God when he's like coming to give you this embrace and he gets, he gets this cold response? God. What? God 
doesn't have feelings. He does. <laughs> we don't have feelings. We have these like really bad, you know, like synaptic responses that mimic feelings. Like we they're do. used as an yeah, we do. They mimic feelings. They're a good analogy for feelings, but only God has real feelings. That's another Hasidic idea, but not for okay, right wait. now. Any I, I want an answer to my question. You can ask your question. How does God feel? Good. Then why does He feel bad? Not loved. So actually, it's not. It depends. It depends. If if it's because you're making a conscious effort and a conscious choice to dismiss God and like wipe God out of the picture, then God gets very offended by that. But if it's because you're not spiritually sensitive. It's like, how do parents feel when they kiss their sleeping children? Mm-hmm. They feel connected. Because the fact that sleeping children aren't aware of it is not like a, through any fault of their own. So if you do a mitzvah completely oblivious to what a mitzvah is, through no fault of your own, that doesn't detract how wonderful it is for God. But if you do have the opportunity to have more appreciation than you choose not to, that kind of does add a little bit of a sour taste to the whole thing. Now you can ask your question. Okay, so... If mitzvahs are God, yeah. wouldn't that mean that God's limited? Because there's limited, like there's... Yes. Okay. It would mean that. So then... God is issue? limited? Why is that an issue? Because you hear all the time that you can't limit God. You that can't God's limit infinite? God. No, it's two, two things. You can't limit God. That's true. That's the difference saying you can't limit God versus saying God isn't limited. God isn't limited is an objective statement about the state of being of God. You can't limit God is a statement about your abilities. And this is something that's conflated all the time. As far as you're concerned, when you approach God, it's open-ended. God is infinite. God could be whatever. Like, I have no say in the matter. But God has a say in the matter. This goes back to God being who and not what. God is not an idea of, in, of undifferentiated infinite oneness. And then he's compelled to like stay true to that. God is his own being, and he can be whatever he is. This is who he is. I, in approaching God, should not make any presumptions as to who or what God is or isn't. And therefore, as far as I'm concerned, when I approach God, God's infinite until he informs me otherwise. And this is a very important Jewish idea because actually there is no Jewish thinker that actually thinks God is defined by being infinite. Um, because that would kind of undermine a whole concept in Judaism of like specific requirements and reward and punishment, all sorts of things. I don't want to get into all that, but every Jewish thinker um, either will use philosophical doublespeak, like, well, God is not infinite, he's just, we don't have any words for it, that like, or God is infinite, but also finite, and that would be like some of the capitalists, or like, just like, say like, God is infinite as far as our presuppositions about him, and God is whatever he decides to be as far as he's concerned, and that would be the Hasidic view. But, but the idea of like this absolute, undifferentiated, infinite oneness, it's just it's not compatible with you know, Judaism for a number of reasons. And that's a, that's a challenge for us, because we're actually very comfortable with the idea of like an infinite, undifferentiated oneness. But you know what? So are the pagans. The pagans were fine with that. They didn't like, have any connection with that undifferentiated, you know, transcendent oneness, because like, it doesn't relate to me individually. Zeus, on the other hand, the god of lightning, that I can relate to because I don't want my barn getting struck by lightning. So, that's, yeah, that's a, an important and often difficult idea and it's even more difficult to live because a lot of it speaks about the tension between our approaching God as infinite and the realization that he is, for lack of words, 
well-defined on his own terms. He has an identity, and there's a tension in that that Siddha speaks a lot about. The more you experience that and how to navigate that. Um, but yeah, because it is true, as we approach God, the idea of him being infinite is very relevant. It's just, it's kind of an objectification of God. Yes? Well, so there's two things. There's the real limit is that the real limit is that God is saying, I have an identity. My identity is that I'm yours and I want to be with you in all these number of ways. And then God has to make like a practical assessment of like what's the best way to do that. So figure six hundred and thirteen for some reason is a good amount of time. So I don't know. <laughs> and then also like how do we deal with the how does the root So, have you ever um, made plans with somebody? Yes. Okay. Is it generally the case that one person dictates the entire plan and the other person just, you know, nods their head and agrees? No. That's how it works? No. No. There's a back and forth? No. So, somebody says, let's meet up for coffee. I say, it's great. Okay. I don't, let's have this coffee. No, right. there's a back and forth, right? And so, actually, the whole idea of the Torah is actually a back and forth. So the, to go from the Torah that was given to God to the actual halachas of how we do the mitzvahs is a back and forth between God and the Jewish people. So God sets forth like, okay, I'll meet you up in the lulav. And the Jewish people are like, do you mean the Iron Mountain palms? I don't think the Iron Mountain palms are so good for this. Let's use the regular date palms. And, and so it's actually, and for this, Kabbalah is quite helpful because Kabbalah spends a lot of time elaborating on how the Torah is, a, is, a, is an interaction between God and the Jewish people, and the rabbinic laws are part of that. And to use more specifically, um, sometimes you know what somebody else would like, and you bring that up in the conversation, and that's kind of the Kabbalistic analogy for how rabbinic law works. Yeah? Um, really personifying God is like hard. It is. Um, but, so, if we continue this personification, right, and if God is accepting these cold hugs, like, why is he continuing the relationship? Like, if, if I went and hugged my friend, and, and like, I felt nothing back, fine, like... Well, that's because God doesn't have a reason for doing mitzvahs. It's not contingent on anything else. God wants to be connected to you. That, 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 that's intrinsically meaningful to God. And his being connected to you is not contingent upon how good it feels and whether it's being reciprocated. And then earlier... Um, okay. and the analogy for this, because this is hard, is why friendship is, may not be the best analogy, which is why we often use the analogy of parents and children. That uses you a better analogy. Like, it's a little more one-sided. It's not... More unconditional. It's more unconditional. It's ideally not one-sided. I think with parents and children, though, when we're talking about a relationship, isn't God the child? In what sense? In the sense of like, like the giving of the hugs. And no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good no, no, no. We're, we're actually the receiver, recipients of the hug. We think we're the giver of the hug because we can see the physical action we're taking. Okay. But the physical action is not the hug. The hug is the engagement. Like if you think about it, a hug is not the fact that you physically move your arms and go like this. Right. Right. A hug is a whole state of being in relation to someone else that, that's manifest. Okay. So the hugging is how intense God, it's like, it's like the altar of a running to his grandson. It's that intensity of his being with you. That's the hugging. The fact that it takes place, the fact that it's, it has a physical packaging means it reaches you. And if you do the mitzvah, you're like accepting the hug, just physically, maybe not emotionally. 
And if you don't do the mitzvah, it's like someone can come and hug you and you just go like that, and then they can't hug you. Or someone can hug you and you can just like, you know. So if you do a mitzvah, you do a mitzvah. What you're really just doing is you're allowing God to hug you. And by the way, this is very important because one of the things that Siddha says as a follow-up from this is that people often try and make mitzvahs meaningful. And that's kind of silly. Because if you're trying to make something meaningful, then there's, you're not paying attention to the meaning that's already there. What makes the mitzvah meaningful is that it's a mitzvah, that God is trying to hug you. So then what should you try and be attentive to in the mitzvah? That he's hugging you, right? And so like, when Chassidim when speak about the joy of doing a mitzvah, what they mean is the joy of realizing that Hashem is yours and he's hugging you. The joy of realizing what's happening rather than trying to bestow some larger spiritual meaning and uh, how, like, I don't know, this is going to draw down, like, something into the supernal wine and blah, 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 I don't know. Or, like, how fun it is because, like, we're singing particular songs or whatever. But, like, the joy that comes of, like, God actually is there with me. God actually cares. Like, this is him reaching me. And the more a person realizes it, the more realizes a person realizes how awesome that is and how um, miraculous that is, the more joy they have in the mitzvah itself. And so doing mitzvahs is actually seen as not something you do for God, but is almost something that you receive from God. Which is why we try and work on a relationship first and then do mitzvahs second. So we appreciate being hugged by God. Can you just say that one more time? Mitzvahs are something that... We don't do for God, God, but more something received from God. Like when we say he gave us the mitzvahs, right? Yes? So if everything is ultimately good, uh, like why does he have any kind of negative feeling? Like, What is ultimate everything good? Well, I've heard that a million times, like that everything is like good. Like, well, that's like a separate topic, but a one sentence answer is that good is not synonymous with pleasurable. There are many good things that are painful. Okay, but I'm saying like his his anger, which you just said is like a billion times more than ours. Anger is obviously not good. Why? Anger might come from a place of love. Why is anger not good? If there's a whole Hasidic discourse explaining the positive side of anger. In fact, there was a Hasidic Rebbe, the grand, the grandson of the Valshemtov, named Rebarach Mezhebush. And Rebarach Mezhebush said that my grandfather revealed how to serve God with joy. And so serving God with joy is not impressive. I serve God with anger. Um, now there's a rule about about special tzaddikim like Rebbe Mezhebush is that they all have their own copy of the Zohar. Um, what this means is that in the Zohar that they're using, there's stuff there that's not written in anyone else's Zohar. So like if they like could open a page and show you that it's written like on, on page 13 something, and then close the book and hand it to you, and you open a page 13, it's not written there anymore. It's only written there when they're using it. <laughs> So there's a common theme in the Zohar expression that's used a lot, which is like there's two versions of something. That, um, the Aramaic is 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 like isir of isir. There's this fear and there's this fear, or there's this love and there's this love. Like there, there's two dimensions to something. There's two versions of something. So in Rabbi Baruch Hamedrash was able to open up the Zohar and show people. Again, it's not written in any of Zohar. You'll find it, look it up. It's not there. But he could like just take a random Zohar, open it up, and show you that it says. Isrugza, v'isrugza ushmei barach, which means there's one anger and there's another kind of anger, and its name is barach. Meaning there's an unholy anger, there's a holy anger, I don't know what that means, and that's his pattern. So, now, I will say, as a matter of practicality, the overwhelming majority of anger is negative. But if you want to understand anger as a positive God, you have to find the positive examples of anger and then abstract from those. And so, there are specific discourses that discuss it. Yes. 
Um, with what you were saying about not like searching for meaning and doing mitzvahs, other than like the meaning that it already has, if you like know of a mitzvah, but like you don't know the like reason behind it, like you know you're supposed to put on one shoe before the other, but like you don't know why, are you still supposed to like do it even though you don't know why you're doing it? Like, yes. Or something? Okay. Yes. 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 Although I will make a caveat to that. You should not make lifelong commitments to doing mitzvahs okay. without feeling comfortable doing that. Okay. You have to differentiate between the act of doing a mitzvah and the psychological state of mind of commitment. Psychological commitment should be done carefully because if you do it when you're not ready, it will backfire. And if you do it too late, it's just you're playing games with yourself. And it's your, or it's like something, I decided to be Mishomer Shabbos and was like, you've been keeping Shabbos for three years now. Like, you have to be a little more self-aware. <laughs> or like, I'm going to keep Shabbos because I went to the Kotel once. And like, <laughs> maybe you need to like calm down and process your experiences, right? So commitment, that requires like more and more attention. But doing, doing is just in that moment. Okay. Yeah. So there's 613 mitzvahs and we're not, no one is able to fulfill all 613. <clears throat> That's right. So Hashem saying that there's certain people that have more opportunities to connect to him, different opportunities to connect to him? Like both. Those are both true. For instance, I have more opportunities than you, because I'm a man and you're a woman, and therefore I have mitzvahs. And that's actually the reason, and this is the, the politically incorrect part, but the straightforward halachic reason for why there's a bracha that men thank God for not being a woman is because men have mitzvahs. So I would like to point this out in practicality. Men have a mitzvah called reciting the Shema in the morning. Now, if you don't know what that means, that means is there's a time in the morning where the man has to recite the Shema. It does not matter what time he went to bed. It does not matter how tired he is. Do you imagine like not eating matzah on Pesach? Just like missing one Pesach? Like you have a time window, the night of Pesach, you miss it, you miss it, like you can't make it up, right? Imagine having that every morning. That's what you have. That's right. And we make a mitzvah. Thank you, God, for giving that to us. <laughs> And we're like, thanks to him for not. <laughs> um, so yeah, th- th- that's the uh, that's the straightforward halachic reason for for the mitzvahs of that you know Jews have mitzvahs mitzvahs in a way that's far beyond non-Jews. Um, free Jews have mitzvahs beyond Jews that are enslaved, and then men are have more obligations than women. That, so in terms of more, there is the more, but there's also differences. So more is not the same thing as better. Quantity doesn't always equal quality, and there are mitzvahs that are are either halachically or. Um, in custom given over to one particular type of person or another, um, and therefore there is a unique way that God is with these types of people and other types of people. Ultimately, though, the real answer is that, is that we think of the Jewish people as a whole. Um, and so, like, for instance, in Kabbalah, it's not that God is with one kind of Jew in one way, one kind of Jew in another way. It's that he's with all Jews in all ways to the degree that the Jews come together in the way they should. So a practical example is when you get married, um, your husband's tefillin also reach you, um, you're going to make also reaches your husband, that kind of thing. Um, and then as a people, if we have a high priest, the high priest's mitzvah affect all of us, the king's mitzvahs affect all of us, the mitzvah of loyalty to the king affects the king, if we all come together. So there's, there's these elements. But if you want to just like strictly enumerate them, then yes, there are people who have more, there are people who have less, but it's not like of value or worth. It's just no, like no, no, no. One of the one of the one of the key ideas of chassidus is that ranking is bad. Appreciating the difference and how those differences complement each other is critical, but ranking is bad. So chassidus is very. It's weird because people chassidus is very. 
very into embracing difference while rejecting hierarchy. And that's actually a hard mental space for everyone to be in. Because when we, when we see things that are different, we immediately want to say, which is better. Okay. Right. What's that? Embracing difference? Embracing difference, rejecting hierarchy. Yeah. How does the um, fact that some people have more mitzvahs than others reconcile with the concept you were saying before that Hashem gave us so many because He wants us to have more opportunity to connect? Because then it like kind of deep, like it's not such a heartwarming group. So because some, I mean, the, so now this is where you can start adding other ideas. So for instance, some mitzvahs are just more time-consuming than others. So for instance, we have a principle: one who's involved in mitzvahs is exempt from a mitzvah. Because if a mitzvah at the end of the day is a hug from God, it really doesn't matter if you're doing one mitzvah or doing another mitzvah. So, for instance, I've actually seen this written in halachic works, which, um, and this is like not going to be um, gender neutral, but just letting you know, right, is that when a mother of small children can't do any mitzvahs because she's taking care of small children, it is not merely that she's exempt from time down mitzvahs. She actually can employ the principle of involved in a mitzvah exempt from a mitzvah. Um, and so meaning that even mitzvahs that she would technically be obligated to do, even though they're time-bound or not time-bound, she may, if they really can't do that while taking care of small children, then she's even exempt from those. Um, and so part of it, and it's not a full, it's not a full, part of it is that some mitzvahs are are just more time-consuming than others. Um, and Chassidus speaks a lot about, in the earlier generation of Chassidus, this was spoken a lot about the difference between the scholarly people and the lay people, who the scholarly people are clearly overtly doing more mitzvahs or spending more time studying Torah, and Chassidus, starting from the Baal Shantu, spent a lot of time saying, yeah, but the mitzvah that the people going to work are doing, of going to work while trusting God, and then giving tzedakah from what they earned, that is a very, that, that, that mitzvah is just, it, it takes more time, it takes a whole day. Do the mitzvahs and, that take longer have a different, like, are they considered like a better hug or a longer so, hug? So, so the thing is like, the thing is, the thing is like this. Um, there is a aspect in which every mitzvah is unique, and therefore no mitzvah can substitute another. And there's an aspect in which all mitzvahs are the same. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, all hugs can be measured in the same parameter, which is how sincerely are they being given. How altruistically, in the sense of not for any other purposes, right? And that's true whether you're hugging a small child, hugging your long-lost relative, hugging your spouse. But there's clearly different flavors, right? The hugging of a spouse is romantic, the hugging of a small child is not, right? Hugging a long-lost friend or relative that you haven't seen in a long time has a totally different quality to it um, than hugging a little child who's very cute and adorable. So there's the one parameter where they're just all the same, is which is how sincere and deeply are they felt, and there's other the kind of flavor. And so mitzvahs are the same. In as much as that mitzvahs are a hug, they're all infinitely deep hugs, but they have different flavors. And so if you want to partake of all the flavors, the only way you can do that is by being united with the rest of the Jewish people in a proper manner, as Walcha describes. See, is there an advantage to, instead of doing one mitzvah that takes up more time and distracts you from other mitzvahs, doing a whole bunch of... Or conversely, maybe there's an advantage of doing one mitzvah that takes a long time. Right, that's what I'm And maybe there's advantages to both. And maybe so because we, And there are. And therefore, we can't have everybody do everything, so God made some people work for a living, and some people be rabbis, and some people be mothers, and some people be grandmothers, and some people be kings, and some people be the high priest, and some people be soldiers, and everybody has the, you know their mitzvahs. And when we all relate to each other as a unified whole, but each with a different thing, then we're all able to partake and benefit of each other's hugs. Um, and, and when you know that's fully realized in the coming of Mashiach in the most overt way. And when we busy starting around trying to compete with each other, or trying to like, I want, I want to live your life and you want to live my life, 
then that just ultimately leads to discord and, and it's not good for anybody. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of like Jewish, like Jews versus non-Jews, and most of the mitzvahs for non-Jews, like the seven one high laws, they're all pretty much like rational, right? So does that mean that in some ways a Jew's relationship with God is deeper just from the nature that there are mitzvahs that we don't know the reason we do them anyway? Yeah, so I... Everything I said in today's class about the Chassidus reason for mitzvahs only applies to mitzvahs of Jews. It does not apply to mitzvahs of non-Jews. The, hug, uh, the, hugging thing? the hugging thing. There is a caveat to that. Okay. The caveat to that is that is in as much as the non-Jew is doing their mitzvahs independent of the Jews doing their mitzvahs. But when the non-Jews do their mitzvahs because God commanded them at Mount Sinai, and create a society which that allow us to do our mitzvahs, then God hugging us gets extended to God hugging them. So, um, if so, the, the 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 way this is put is that the non-Jew doesn't have the ability to to have this hug directly, but if the hug of the Jewish people is done properly and the world is proper, the hugging of the Jewish people ends up embracing all people. In fact, it goes even further; it also embraces all of reality, including like the physical objects. Right. It's a lot of responsibility. You can tell why the non-Jews are upset with us. Like, we want our hug! Get to it! It's not fair. Yes. It depends. You have to look at the halachas. Um, in Halacha, there's a concept called where you yoytzi bidiyad, which means, did you do the mitzvah? Did you fill the requirements? At least ex post facto, at the bare minimum. If the answer is yes, then yes, you did a mitzvah. So I'll give you some examples where it may not seem like you did a mitzvah, um, but you did do a mitzvah. So for instance, um, if you make a bracha and you don't even think about what you're doing, but you said all the words, you did a mitzvah. Because attention to what you're saying or even understanding what you're saying is not a requirement bit the of an ex post facto. Conversely, by the way, if you think and meditate deeply upon the meaning of the bracha and you don't actually say the words, you do not do the mitzvah and do not get a hug. Although you might feel very spiritual. Um, then there are mitzvahs where um, where the so, for instance, Shabbos. Every moment where you are keeping Shabbos has validity in and of itself. So, for instance, the rule is not that if you violated Shabbos Friday night, well, now your Shabbos is worthless, so there's no reason you can keep violating. No. So, in that sense, if a person says, well, I'm only, I, I, can keep, I, I can keep Shabbos Friday night, but I don't know if I can commit to doing Saturday dinner. It's too much. So, okay, well, then Friday night is still worth something. It's still a mitzvah. Um, if you, on Pesach, if you eat... There's a minimum amount of matzah you have to eat in a minimum amount of time. It's actually less matzah than most people think, and it's a longer period of time than most people think. People get crazy stringent about matzah for some strange reason. Um, but if you eat, like, like in really extreme, like you really can't eat matzah, but if you eat, like, probably somewhere between seven and nine grams of matzah within nine minutes, which is basically nothing, then you do a mitzvah. But if you, like, nibbled at the matzah, well, you didn't do a mitzvah. So you have to know the specific halachas. And, and actually, from the specific perspective, what the halachas basically saying is, like, what are the bare minimum things for, like, the hug to actually take place? Um, and, and so what you'll find is that a lot of mitzvahs, um, you know, you can end up doing the mitzvah even if you didn't do everything around it. 
That being said, if you make your life as doing the bare minimum, um, it's like walking at the edge of a cliff. At one point, you're probably just going to fall off the, off the side. Um, and so one should not make a habit of doing that, but one should never invalidate you know, what they're doing. Um, but one should ensure that at least when they do a mitzvah, at least it fits the bare minimum standard, whatever that mitzvah is, whatever that moment of mitzvah is. Yeah? So when you make a braha or something, they say like you elevate that spark, does that not count as a hug? Because you were just saying like when Mashiach comes, God's going to hug inanimate objects and like other things. So, so uh, the, the issue with Mashiach is that in, your, in the childlike mindset that we all, including myself, share, is that Mashiach is the like, this like magical fairyland where all of a sudden things are different. Um, and Mashiach is actually the reality we create through our proper observance of Torah mitzvahs, which means the more you, meaning when Mashiach comes, it will not be like, wow, Mashiach came and we'll be like, well, that was kind of obvious, in retrospect. It'll just seem that there's a, there's a clear continuity between our observing Torah mitzvahs properly and, and what the reality of Mashiach. The thing is, beforehand, it, it, it's hard to imagine. And there, there's a lot of things like that. Um, the example of this, which actually Mashiach is compared to, is, is having a child, which is before you have a child, especially before your first child. It's like, on, on a very fundamental level, unmanageable. And then after you have it, it just seems like, okay, it was clearly a progression of how that comes about. And so, in that sense, one needs to be able to find everything that's true about the Messianic era already in their Judaism in the era of exile. So if something is true, like say that the hug embraces the physical object when Mashiach comes, there has to be some element of which that's already true now, and that's exactly okay. the spark. It's going to be intensified. It's going to be intensified okay. and clearer and more obvious. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. So just remember, Judaism is a cult. <laughs> yeah. The cult leader is busy giving hugs to everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Thank